Turn in your Bibles there, please, to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 65. Chapter 65. Uh, our main focus really will be ch- uh, verses 17 through 25. Uh, Isaiah is coming to a close. This is sermon number 48. Unfortunately, we're going to finish at 49. You have no idea how that drives me crazy. That is 49 and not 50. Um, but I'm going to have to live with it. <laughs> um, the book of Isaiah, we've been calling it the gospel according to Isaiah because it is really the most prophetic insight in the Old Testament of the person and work of Jesus. And um, we'll find ourselves in chapter 66 next week to conclude it. We'll do a few weeks on disciple making. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it look like to be a disciple maker? Uh, I've said this before, family, you know the word of God tells us that Jesus said, I will build my church, not you, pastor, not you, congregation. Jesus said, I will build my church. Gates of hell will not prevail against it, but you, pastor, equip, pastor, teach, and do as well as the congregation. You guys go and make disciples. That's our job, to make disciples of all nations. So he builds, we make disciples. So it's very important, obviously, as part of why, it is the reason why we're here. When we're done with our study through uh, that, we go through our building expansion. We're going to be in the gospel according to Dr. Luke. So open your Bibles in the New Testament to Luke. Be reading it throughout the week. It'll be great to get a good jump start on that. And um, there'll be a a good study together, uh, probably a good up to a year. We'll take breaks as we always do, but we're in that gospel account. We've already John. We've already done John. We've already done Mark. And now we're in the gospel according to Luke. But now we're in Isaiah. We're in that third section. We're wrapping up. Chapters 1 through 39 make up the first segment or the first major section in Isaiah. God called Isaiah to preach. God, through Isaiah, called out his people for their covenant-breaking sin. They, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, mostly Judah. And then God sent the Assyrian nation in to discipline his children. They conquered the northern kingdom, sent them out, and then were on the doorstep of Jerusalem in Judah. Uh, Judea, so Judah, um, and at that point, God promised in the end of the first section that their people would be in exile. So we pick up in chapter 40 through 55, the next main section, we find the people in exile, they're in Babylon, um, and they are there for their sin, and God through Isaiah speaks to them, words of comfort, that next major section, and just really says, look, Your sin has caused you to go into exile, but I will save you. I will rescue you. I will uh, return you back to the the mainland, to to, to Israel. I will will do that for you, and you just keep your eyes on me. And we know that God raised up the servant, the Messiah, the anointed ones, who was um, Cyrus, king of Persia, who released God's people from Babylon back to Israel, but he was pointing to a greater and a much better and ultimate Messiah, anointed one, who will deliver us not from bondage physically, but bondage of sin, death, and hell. This last section that we've been looking at, chapters 56 through 66, Isaiah is returning to, we're going to see it again today, returning to some old themes that he has already spoken about, but then he also has given us a real greater uh, picture and plan of the, of the purposes of God in the final consummation of all things. Remember this last section, although Isaiah is writing in the 8th century, he is writing to a people that have come back from exile somewhere in the 6th century. And Isaiah reminds them in chapters 56 through 59 of what it looks like to live as God's people. Um, and, and we see that as soon as we open up this, uh, this last section, and he calls out them 
to, to keep justice and to do righteousness. But unfortunately, they rebelled. They got, they got comfortable back in the land, and they, they, they were corrupted. Their leadership was corrupted. They, 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 were, they were hypocrites. They acted uh, uh, worshiping idols. We saw that already. But again, Isaiah, the great book of Isaiah, the one thing we've seen over and over again is our holy and just God extends love and grace and mercy to undeserved rebellious sinners like you and I. It is the good news of the gospel, the offer of salvation to all nations, all tongues, and all tribes. This last section also reveals the work of the King of Kings, the Messiah, the final work of Jesus. Last week, Isaiah gave us a prophetic look into the second coming of Christ. When he returns, he will return with vengeance. He will pour out God's wrath upon those who reject his love, those who want nothing of his forgiveness, those who, who think they could save themselves and not trust in the salvation of God. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 3. I have trotted the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. A similar prophetic disclosure, revelation, that John says in Revelation 19 of the second coming of Christ. And we said last week, and I'll say it again to you this morning, it's a call to flee God's wrath and run to his loving arms, his gracious arms of salvation. Remember, we said last week that God is good and God is just and justice must be done. A good and a holy, just God will not allow sin and injustice to rule his creation. Justice, we know, is part of the Imago Dei. All of us want to see justice being done, but on someone else. Deep in your soul, we know that. How much more for the creator, sustainer, and lover of his creation who sits back and watches it just unravel and people abuse one another and hate him family christ came the first time he took on flesh and blood he lived the perfect life and he died an atoning sacrifice for our sin he lived that life of perfection that we could never live he died in our place the death we should have died and god in love has made a way for us to escape the coming wrath by pouring out his wrath on the one who died in our place jesus the gracious and glorious substitute. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating hell, sin, and death. Run to Christ. That was the call last week. Run to Christ. Again, this morning, run to Christ. Now, in chapter 64, we ended last week. God's cry, uh, excuse me, God's people cried out for his presence. But they realized and they recognized that their sin had separated them from God. Chapter 63, verse 12. Excuse me, chapter 64, verse 12, is where we ended. Will you restrain yourself at these things? Now look at verse 11, chapter 64, verse 11. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you have been burned by fire and all the pleasant places have become ruins. He's talking about sin. He's talking about brokenness. He's talking about judgment. He's talking about uh, the uh, uh, chastisement of the Lord. And then verse 12, they end with that question. Will you restrain yourself at these things? Will you keep silent and afflict us so, so terribly? And chapter 65 answers that question. And it is, no, I will not keep silent, he will say. And I will afflict and I will judge. But I also will not keep silent and come and answer and not judge my remnant, my chosen ones. And we'll see this contrast as we get into chapter 65. So that's where we're at 
turn there with me. And what I've done is really broke it up into two main sections. Um, if you have an ESV, you'll see the heading is Judgment and Salvation. That's kind of where we're going to go. We're going to look at the first 17 verses quickly and then get into the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth. So Judgment and Salvation, Isaiah 65. Let me read to you God's holy, inspired, authoritative word, verses 1 through 6 for now. Isaiah chapter 65, verses 1 through 6. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. Now, you should have an Astra star or some sort of a side note there. I think the ESV actually got it wrong. To a nation that was not called, was not called, not by my name, but did not call out my name. They didn't call for me is what the point Isaiah is making. Verse 2, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on brick. Verse 4, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both their iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made an offering on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payments for their former deeds. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Verse 1 addresses what was said in chapter 64. No one calls on God's name because you have hidden your face from us. And Isaiah refutes that statement by saying, in fact, that God has revealed himself to a people who did not call on his name. That's what verse 1 is all about. A nation that did not call my name. In other words, the reason that, that, that they did not call on God was not because he didn't reveal himself to them. But because, and, and he is constantly and continually revealing himself to them, the problem was not in God, the problem lay with the people. So God's going to step right in and say, no, I've got an answer for you. It's not me, it's you. Your sin, chapter 59, verse 1. We, you remember the verse, right? He says, he says um, behold, the Lord is not too short that it can't save, his ear too dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And the next first uh, chapter 65, the next six verses, God lets them know what the problem really is. Look what it says. They have been rebellious and obstinate, walking in not good ways, following their own devices, their, their, their own things that they concocted up for themselves. Family, that's the problem with all of us and all of mankind. Rather than obediently submitting to the will and the way and the word of God, we find ourselves, and they find themselves, that they want to live apart from God. They want to do their own thing. What we call idolatry, what the Bible calls idolatry. We, we invent worship practice that we believe that we can somehow manipulate God to act in our favor, and yet still retain the options and still want to walk in our own ways and do our own thing. Look what the text says. Things like sacrificing in the garden. 
Okay, in that day there were evergreen trees, a symbol of life, and they would sacrifice. It was a major uh, uh, ritual in the Canaanite pagan days and offerings on rocks. Look what it says, sitting in the graves. It was their attempt to connect with the spirits. And so, somehow, you know, get some power from them or some wisdom from them. The cons, uh, the con, they consumed pig's flesh. Uh, if you know anything about the Old Testament, forbidden by the law. This is not what God had told the Israelites of how he wants to be worshipped. The people couldn't find God this way. Why? Because they didn't really want to find God. They wanted to worship their own way. In fact, Romans tells us that there's no one who seeks after God. Sin has separated us from him. The human heart is deeply pagan. Our natural thoughts do not submit gladly to the Lord, but look for ways that we can manipulate his power to our own ends. Even for atheists. <laughs> Why? Because God created us worshipers. All of us worship. It's not if we worship. It's who and what we worship. Right? We're all sacrificing. We're all chasing something. Something or someone. And hope that we get some peace, some security, some acceptance, some some fulfillment, a sense of value, a purpose and meaning. It, 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 it plagues our souls. And when we search for those things outside of our relationship with God, which we all do, it's called idolatry. Verse 6. I will not keep silent. I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap. Verse 7. Your iniquity and your father's iniquities. Because they made an offering on the mountains, that's idolatry, they're running after false gods, and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. They're like, God, we want you to act, and God says, okay, I'll act. You want to chase after other things, there's going to be consequences, and he will repay them. But praise the Lord, verse 8 through 16, and we'll see this contrast Look with me through 8 through 16. We see a contrast. Those who, who by the grace of God, by, by the Spirit of God, seek after the Lord and those who forsake Him. Verse 8 through 10, God speaks of the, this whole cluster of grapes. The, one, the, the good ones He plucked, the ones He enjoyed that were sweet to Him. These few grapes are the remnant. Look what it says, the chosen ones. By the grace of God, among the Israelites. Paul writes about them in Romans 11, I believe. The contrast between the ones that are good and the ones that have blessing and the ones that are bad, the ones that are rebel against God and, and, and commit idolatry and the fate of them or what's going to happen to them. And, and the contrast stands side by side. For the remnant who seek the Lord by faith, God promises to produce, look, a descendants, multiple descendants who will inherit the mountains of Judah and dwell there richly, verse 10, a fertile land, rich pasture land, a pasture land for their flocks graze and lie down in. There's, there's a blessing of faith and obedience, blessing of the old covenant to, to walk in the ways of God. But for the wicked who abandon the Lord, who forget his holy mountain, who forget his presence, go running after pagan deities, there's only the sword. Verse 11 and 12. I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall, down, shall bow down to the slaughter. In other words, you want to bow down and you want to worship, you want to chase after everything, all the other things that are not me, and you'll bow down, but you'll bow down to the sword. But verses 
11 and 12 also, excuse me, verse 13. He begins, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, my servants, those who, those who follow in my ways, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you, rebellious ones, the ones who run from me, run from my presence, run from my love, run from my grace, you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. What a contrast. It should remind us this morning of heaven and hell, to be honest. What's heaven like? Drinking, rejoicing, and singing for gladness. Our hearts singing, rejoicing forevermore. What is hell like? What is separation from God in eternity in hell? It's like hunger and thirst and shame and crying out, wailing and, and brokenness and the spirit in despair forever and ever. The ultimate end of this is the difference between heaven and hell. In heaven, the redeemed that are saved by grace alone will spend eternity feasting at the table of God. Drinking freely of the river of, of Jesus, water of life, shouting for joy, not in hell, tormented, weeping, gnashing of teeth. That's what the scripture says. As we already said, justice is required. Judgment must come. God is holy. God will not and cannot embrace sin. He will not allow sin to go unpunished. And family, I will tell you, we talk a lot about the gospel here. This is what we're here for, the gospel. But hell is a gospel issue. Because the gospel, maybe we don't speak about it, maybe other, other places, I don't know. But when we come together and we go through scripture together, we talk about it. Because it's true. And God's love is true. But it's a gospel issue because the gospel declares that God saves sinful people. Not good people, not sincere people, not nice people. There are none. All of Scripture, including Isaiah, makes that perfectly clear. And if there's any hope for us, bad people, it's Jesus Christ who obeyed perfectly and went to the cross for us. Here is the truth. The gospel declares that Christ himself went to hell for us. That's what happened on the cross. Every sin is punished in God's moral universe. Every sin without exception. No one gets away with it. But sinners go to hell in one of two ways. Either personally or substitutionally. In their own experience, God's wrath is poured out because they refuse his love, refuse the gospel, refuse Christ to pay for sin or in Christ, our substitute. In his infinite suffering on the cross. God in love could not choose, could not resolve or choose not to punish the guilt of sin, but sent his son as our substitute, dying in our place. He endured our hell. He was separated from the Father. Why hast thou forsaken me? My God, my God, experiences the wrath, experiencing separation on the cross. If you want to believe in a loving God, what greater love can God show us than dying on a cross for our sins? Only the gospel of Christ crucifies offers sinful people hope as, as God uh, displays the costly love that he has for us. 
It was Dr. Tim Keller who said, the doctrine of hell, now listen to me, okay? Listen to Keller. (laughs) The doctrine of hell is crucial. Getting quiet in here. The doctrine of hell is crucial. Without it, we can't understand our complete dependence on God, the character and danger of even the smallest sins, and the true scope of the costly love of Jesus. That's a great quote. The doctrine of hell is crucial. Without it, we can't understand our complete dependence on God, the character and danger of even the smallest sins, and the true scope of the costly love of Jesus. End quote. Amazing. And now we get into chapter 65, verse 17 through 25. We see God not only being faithful, God's God's faithfulness, to, to his redemptive, historical redemptive promise for his remnant people, in spite of their rebellion and, and in spite of their unfaithfulness, that's what the gospel is. But we see his desire and his power and his ability to provide a, a glorious new, a glorious new righteous, righteously new heaven and earth for them. So we're going to look at these rest of these um, the rest of this chapter in four headings. I'll hit them quickly. You guys could talk about them in community groups. Um, The first thing we'll see as we see in chapter 65, verse 17, is a new creation. New creation, new people, new blessing, new relationship. New creation. Look with me in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that I create... For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness, verse 19a. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Isaiah is going to reveal to God's people of of the, the new heavens and the eternal state of eternity as God's people enter into a new creation. We see this similar in Revelation chapter 21 as the the new heaven and new earth comes out of heaven. But what's interesting here is that Isaiah begins chapter uh, verse 17 uh, with a description of the eternal state and then, as we'll see shortly, he'll flash back to the millennial reign of Christ, that literal uh, 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 reign of Christ on earth. And Isaiah is going to reveal the eternal state when, when heaven comes out of uh, when, when heaven and earth, the new heaven and the new earth comes out of heaven, we see it in Revelation 21, and then reveal the millennial reign of Christ even though that comes first. And that's something he has done in the past. We see it in chapter 60, verse 19 through 31. There are times in the Old Testament when the prophets are prophesying that it's not necessarily in chronological order. They're being given the revelation by God and they're speaking what God wants to speak. It's not many times until the New Testament, it's why we call it progressive revelation, where things begin to make a little bit more chronological sense. Things even like heaven and hell, we don't see so much in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament. God didn't drop a book out of the sky he gave us the revelation throughout the years. It's done. It's over. It's complete. But we're looking at Isaiah. And God says in chapter 17, Behold, I'm going to act. That's what he says. Behold, I create. I create. What does that sound like? Genesis, right? Genesis 1. He used that term create three times, bara. In the Hebrew. It's a work of his sovereign power. And he's saying this. It's no less awe-inspiring than when I created the heavens and the earth. 
The word implies effortlessness and points to, to uh, this, this work and this production to something fundamentally new. The new heavens and the new earth God will create will be so glorious that the old world will wither into insignificance. Remember, God's not part of his creation. He is distinct from it. He creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. And his creative activity, his almighty power, which was displayed in the original creation, we read Genesis 1 and 2, is again displayed in the new heavens and the new earth, his new creation. It will fully show forth the glory of God, his incalculable worth, and so completely fulfill every need, every desire of man, that the former heavens, the former earth, will no longer even be remembered. Look what it says. No will enter into the mind of the heart of man. It'll only be a millisecond. When we look around and say sickness, hate, prejudice, gone. Don't remember. Where in this world can Israel, where find this joy and happiness now? Where in the world can we find this happiness now? Is that something we're looking forward to through maybe a political process? I hope not. Any political process. Maybe the hope of education? I hope not. Our only hope and our only sure hope is the God who will create. All this will happen, why? Because the King of Kings has come the first time he's coming again. The anointed one, the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ will inherit the kingdom. Our current environment is so marred with sin and so polluted. (laughs) It is beyond just cleaning up through political process, through education, through more money or whatever it may be. It needs a renewal. Nothing short of a new heavens and a new earth will suffice. And this new creation is a cause, look what it says, for ceaseless hope and rejoicing among God's people. The new Jerusalem will be a place of rejoicing in contrast with the mourning and the brokenness. And God's people now in the new Jerusalem will have, eternally, will have eternal joy. Even God himself, know what it says, look what it says, will also rejoice in the new city. We've seen God lament over and over throughout the book of Isaiah because he sees the rebellion of the city and now we see the opposite in a new city that God is rejoicing. It was Calvin who said, so great is his love toward us, God's love toward us, that he delights in our prosperity, not less than if he enjoyed it along with us. In, uh, in all their affliction, he was afflicted, we saw that earlier, but also in our joy he rejoices, end quote. So the question, I think, for us as we move on is, number one, are we rejoicing in how God is transforming us? Are we rejoicing now as God is preparing us for that day? Or how does that truth, how does that reality of what God promised for our future, how does it change us? How does it transform us? How does it, how does it change our worldview? How does it change our hope today for what the future holds? And this, this transforming verse should propel us to, to love God and to love others, to live a life pleasing to the Lord, to, to have a life dedicated to the Missio Dei, the mission of God, seeking and saving the lost. Lovely, uh, lovingly, I should say, demonstrating His grace, caring for others, loving others, forgiving others, being generous to others, demonstrating His grace, and then declaring the truth of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. We don't lose heart. Though our, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
For this light momentary affliction is is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. It's a new heavens and new earth. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Knowing that this world will end. Knowing that this world will come to an end and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth should profoundly affect everything we do. First Peter, I have to read this. Chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt? Not annihilation, but a renewal. How? I don't know. It's not my job. I'm glad it's not. We ought to live in a way that reflects eternality. Most of you probably heard of a woman named Joni Erickson Tata. 17 years old, was, when she was 17, she dove into a uh, shallow water and, and broke her neck, and she's a quadriplegic in a wheelchair. She's, she's paralyzed from the uh, neck down, actually. She wrote a book called Heaven, Your Real Home. This is what she wrote. Interesting, now, you know, you heard a story. She says this, when a Christian realizes his citizenship is in heaven, he begins acting as a responsible citizen on earth. He invests wisely in relationships because he knows they're eternal. His conversations, goals, and motives become pure and honest because he realizes, she realizes, these will have a bearing on everlasting reward. He gives generously of time, money, and talent because he or she's laying up treasures for eternity. He spreads the good news of Christ because he longs to fill heaven's ranks with his friends and neighbors. All this serves the pilgrim well. Not only in heaven, but on earth, for it serves everyone around him, end quote. I, uh, let me just honestly say, and I put myself in this category, I think sometimes we are way too short-sighted, right? New creation, new people, verse 19b. No more shall be heard a sound of weeping and cry of distress. No, no more shall there be in it an infant who die, lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and a sinner a hundred years old shall be cursed. Now, I will tell you, <laughs> there are volumes and volumes and volumes written on that verse. <laughs> Scholars are scratching their heads. There are a couple of major ways to interpret that passage, two or three, okay? Remember, there's only one interpretation. We don't mean we got it right, but God was communicating something. It's our job to try to get it right. As I mentioned earlier, I believe it's the millennial reign of Christ. Isaiah in chapter 60 spoke of the, of the literal millennial reign of Christ mentioned in Revelation 20, and then he looked forward to that full consummation of the eternal state of the new heavens and earth. 
Here I think he has it the opposite, where he begins looking at the eternal state in verse 17, and now he's looking at the millennial reign of Christ. Revelation 20, when Jesus comes and the world will have a renovation during the millennial reign, but not a complete renewal until the until he. Uh, uh, releases Satan and brings us into an eternal kingdom. We see heaven and earth come in Revelation 21. That's my take on it. So this, the first stage of what merges into eternity is spoken about here, right? So 17, final state, 19, 20, and 21. I'm going to make my point pretty clear. He's talking about the millennial reign of Christ. That day in which Jesus returns physically on earth, Establishes himself as king in Jerusalem, sitting on the throne of David. Israel is converted, regathered to the nation, restored in the land, ruled by the Messiah. And the Bible speaks of this as a new change, both environmentally, physically, and spiritually, where there's peace, joy, comfort, obedience, holiness, and the true knowledge of God. And then he will reign for a thousand years, and then we will enter into the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 19b, in this time of millennial reign, no more shall be heard in it, the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. The people of God in the millennial reign are transformed. The joy of the Lord will be their strength. No more weeping. And even though believers will enter the millennial kingdom, sin and rebellion will not be completely done away with until Jesus does so in the new heavens and in the new earth. But there's a renovation. There's conditions that will change and people will live for a long time. We see that in this verse. We know in ancient Israel and times of antiquity that medical profession was not like it was today. And people would die of, of things like pneumonia uh, or blockage or other things of that nature. Uh, children would not live. Uh, they don't have the medicine and, and the, the, the NICUs and all that stuff. We see David's son just getting better each and every day. They don't have that back then. Look at verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, which was common in that day, or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years shall be accursed. If there was any trouble in giving childbirth, there was a problem. There was a lot of disease, a lot of things. Medicine wasn't around. Children will be born in the millennial reign, but they will live. It seems like, as you read this text, that although babies will be born and men will not grow, die young, that there's some sort of change. I think it's, many commentators say, we're going back to Genesis 5, where people would live longer. Babies born, children raised in the millennial reign will live a long time. And that's why I believe it's the millennial reign, because there's nobody being born in the new heavens and the new earth. When we enter into eternity, Matthew tells us that we are not given in marriage, but we're like angels in heaven. In other words, we're not married in an eternal state. My wife, would, my wife uh, when we were talking about that, she said, really? Like you're not going to be my husband? And I, I take that as a compliment. She wanted to be married to me for like really eternally. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, you really don't want to be married that long eternally but uh, at least to me anyway I don't know maybe you feel it differently but in the millennial earth babies are born people will live someone 100 years old is still considered a young man right Peter Obviously, death will not have the power it once had. Infant mortality would be virtually unknown. And people's lifespans will be longer. That's one of the best, uh, one of the blessings uh, of this new age is the longevity. Right? 
the sorrow, sorrow and weeping at death really will be defeated. So rolling back, I think, there's this newness, not the complete eternal state where physical death will be gone. There'll be no more death in the new heavens and the new earth. But here there's death, but it takes longer. It takes longer. Um, one commentator wrote this. Let me. This passage proves that the better age to come on earth through much superior to the present will not be a perfect state. Sin and death shall have place in it, Revelation 20, but much less frequent than now, end quote. So there's a partial renewal taking place in the millennial reign. Some say, well, why would God do that? I hear that from my Al Mill friends. And if you're in Al Mill, you know, cool. I'm glad you're here. Why would God do that? Because God said he was going to do that. He told the prophets to preach it. That's why he's going to do it. He's going to fulfill his promise to Israel. And God will be glorified. Jesus will come and rule on the earth. And they will see the beauty and incalculable worth of the one they crucified. Everyone. Some sinners, some saints. New people. Look at the new, new blessing. Look at verses 21 and 23. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree uh, shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their transcendence with them. Right? We see this this covenant blessing. We see that in covenant cursing, there was, there was, there was people, and we've seen this all through Isaiah, that people would, would build their houses, they would build their vineyard, and then an army would come in and crush them and take everything from them. That's the curse. Deuteronomy 28, you shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you will not enjoy its fruits. In their disobedience, we saw the armies coming in and invasions coming in and, and, and their houses were taken and they didn't eat what they planted. But here's a picture of tranquility, a man laboring, enjoying the fruit of his labor. Even his family, in his houses, he's prospering. In his work, in his vineyards, he is prospering as the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. That's longevity, that's durability, that's, that's fertility. The land would experience this, this security when Jesus reigns. Foreign troops will not march in. They will not take what others built. People experience contentment and prolonged life. And they'll get reward for the work in which they worked for. It's a new blessing. And taking place of the disobedient curse. There will be satisfaction. There will be food. There will be, be a time when they can really sit back and watch the work of their hand. That God had given them and God is blessing them. Oswald writes, what a promise to have, the time to do something right, and then the opportunity to enjoy it to the full. That's not, how many times have we worked real hard and have no time to enjoy it? How many times have we worked, work, 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 can I include myself in that, and then it's too late? Not only does this material blessing described in these promises mean wars will subside, but I, I believe we could say that oppression of the poor will be gone. Property won't be taken. Look what it also says, that bearing children will no longer be for calamity. Calamity is a word for sudden terror. 
Again, another connection to the covenant curse for their disobedience. I will bring calamity on you. But now the theme seems to be the cursing out, the, excuse me, the canceling out of the curse. People will enjoy their childbirth. As they give birth, they will see their children raised. I mean, that's the point, right? You're working hard and, and you're having children and you're sitting back and you're enjoying that in which God allowed you to have. How futile it would be to enjoy, to not be able to enjoy the birth, the, the food, the homes in which we work so hard to. In the messianic kingdom on earth, nothing one, no, nothing one does will be a waste of time. Nothing one does will be a waste of time or a source of frustration and futility. Life will be enjoyed. And in some sense, we should rest in that even today. As I, was pre, as I was studying through this, I remembered a, a passage in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, we preached that book a long time ago. Paul has probably, I, I would say, probably one of the most lengthiest treaties on the glorious resurrection of Jesus and what his resurrection means for us today and the hope we have for the future, 1 Corinthians 15. But he ends it, long chapter, 58 verses, something like that, but he ends that chapter with these words. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, all of the resurrection, all of the promises, all of the hope. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's today. You can imagine what the future will hold. And lastly, new, new relationship. Oh, that's supposed to say new relationship. Oh, it does, okay. You guys fixed it already? That was fast. Look at uh, the last couple of verses here. Verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. We saw this earlier in chapter 11, the messianic kingdom, when the Messiah comes, he will restore in the millennial reign this, this glorious new relationship. And we see right here, first is the unimpaired communication with God. Reversing the barriers of sin in verse 12. He says, I called, no one answered, God says. I spoke, no one listened. But here he says, there'll be new communication. Even in chapter 64, the people complained that they did not know God. Well, that's because they did not hear God. That's because their sin. But in the Masonic, uh, Messianic age, it'll be abundantly clear. We'll be, have communication. We'll have relationship with God. Calvin says that God's hearing those that call upon him is the most valuable fruit of faith. You know, the Bible says that in the gospel, because we are children of God, because Jesus died for our sins, we have relationship with God, 1 John 5. He said we have confidence that we have toward God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And yet God says there'll be something even better. What greater privilege than to have a God who, whose love is so great that he answers before one calls him, Young says. The gospel says we have great communication with God. So are, are we communicating? Are, are we doing what Hebrews 4 says? Let us come with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find help in a time of need. Communicating with God, even now. But let's be honest. Let's be honest. If we're all going to be honest today, 
I think it's fair to say that in this broken world, communication with God, prayer with God can be difficult. How many times have you begun to pray and, and your mind starts to wander? You're interrupted with, with things and your confusion, wandering thoughts, dry times. How many times, <laughs> don't answer this question, but how many times have you have fought with your spouse, you don't even want to pray? It's not only me. Or you acted like a jerk. Let's pray. I know. Sometimes our stupidity prevents us from seeing what the wonderful thing God has done as he answers prayer. In the kingdom of God, it will be gone forever. We'll begin to make a request. God will answer. He'll take action. He'll work for our good and his glory. Lastly, verse 25. What a, what a beautiful picture. The wild meat-eating wolf, the predator, and the tender defenseless lamb gaze together. That word together, uh, it literally means as one. It, that you see this intimacy, you see this relationship of peace and unity. Someone once said, if you see a wolf and a lamb lying down together, now it's because the wolf is feeding on the lamb. The ferocious lion eating straw of an ox. The, the serpent will have dust for its food. Uh, can't go far from Genesis 3.15 and see the serpent by Satan, used by Satan to deceive Eve. And, and it says, your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Maybe, maybe, maybe he's eating of the dust in those days just to remind the world as a sign and remembrance of the tragic effects of sin. Isaiah beautifully reveals things here in Jerusalem as we wrap up. Joy replaced with weeping and crying. Longevity replaced with sorrow and death. Answering prayer replaced with God's previous silence and a universal peace will replace that violence. The millennial kingdom. Now, Jesus Christ comes the first time and he sets up and, and, and brings in and inaugurates the kingdom. And some of this stuff is true for us today as a church. I believe some of that will be even more true in the millennial reign and then finally in the eternal state when we go in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? But either way, but either way, God will bring a massive renewal of all things. And that's the hope, family. The hope of, this, of a majestic scale is what the gospel is all about. It offers both the prospect of intimacy with God, a new, renewed world of peace and righteousness. God has a plan. So whether the Lord Jesus returns and reigns on earth for a millennial, thousand-year reign, or immediately sets up an eternal state where there's no more death, either way, it'll be display of his grace, display of his power, display of his sovereign and holy purposes, and he will make all things new. And that's the gospel of hope. And that should change everything. That we can enjoy God now through the gospel. We can repent and believe in the gospel. We can, have, we can be a new creation in God, 2 Corinthians 5. If any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And if you're in Christ, God's not just patching you up. He's made you new. And you can enjoy him forever and ever. Beginning now when you repent and believe. God's blessing will come, not because of the covenant keeping that we do, but the covenant keeping that he has already done in Christ. It is by the grace of God that the Lord Jesus, our perfect covenant keeping God, will bring in a new world. And that's something, family, we can look forward to and rejoice in. And that should change everything. And as the band comes up, I want to share with you a story that I shared before. 
I don't know any other great illustration of how this coming of Christ changes us today. You've heard this before. I apologize, but if not, hold on. Two men are given a job. Two men are standing on assembly line. And their job was given to them that eight hours or ten hours a day, seven days a week, they are to place a stapler in a box. That's all they do. All day long, every day, that's simply what they do. And when they were hired, one man was told, I want you to stand there for ten hours a day, seven days a week, and just put that in the box. And at the end of the year, we will give you $10,000. Day in and day out. The second man said, we want you to do the same thing. We want you to stand on the assembly line, put it in the box. Put it, that's all you do all day long. At the end of the year, we will give you $10 million. Do you think their future promise would change their attitude, perspective, even their work ethic and how they treat their boss and fellow co-workers? Yes. Why? Because of the promise that lays ahead of them. The promise lays ahead for you and for me if we've repented and believed and trusted Jesus. That should change everything today. Let us be a people who acknowledge our sin, who repent from sin, who run to Jesus, have our sins forgiven, and live as if we believe, trust, and rely upon the renewal of all things. Telling others of the good news of Jesus and hope we will see him there in the eternal state. Let's stand and let's pray. And Father, as we continue to worship, Speak to our hearts this morning. Help us to have a proper biblical worldview. Help us to, to rest in the truth of eternity with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our covenant keeper who lived that life, the perfect life, and died our atoning death. And by faith, that perfect life has been given to us our sin on the cross has been given to him. And Lord, we can have eternal life with you. So God, we pray, not only will you transform our mind and our heart to see the beauty of Christ and the glory of what's to come, but God, we pray that maybe there's somebody here that's never really looked at eternity of where they're going. And God, we pray that by your love and by your grace, and of course by your spirit, you would draw them to faith in Jesus, trusting him. And he alone died, he alone rose. And he alone calls all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. So God, help us to leave this place filled with hope in a world that so desperately needs to see and hear about hope. And we pray, God, that you would help us and empower us to live on mission with you, declaring and demonstrating the gospel to all nations, tongues, and tribes. In Jesus' name, amen.